turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Saul escapes Damascus and tries to connect with the believers in Jerusalem. They are naturally skeptical of his claim to now be one of them. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Once again, that's Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Verse 22, but Saul increased the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. The word there, increased, he means he became more capable. Now, how did that happen? Well, as he stayed there in Damascus over three years, the Lord Jesus himself discipled him. If you'll turn over to Galatians chapter 1 with me, I probably should have had you turn there at the start of the sermon. Uh, We're going to be living in Galatians 1 a little bit as we move through here. But in Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives a little bit of explanation of where he learned what he learned. We see here in verse 11... He says, but I certify or I make known unto you, brothers, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man or according to man. But for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it by an idea of implication is by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, keep your finger there and go back to Acts. And when did this happen? When did Jesus reveal himself to Paul? When did he teach him? Well, it says here in verse 23, and after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Those many days we learn is actually three years. If we keep reading, he says, for you have heard, verse 13 in Galatians chapter one, for you have heard of my conversation and my lifestyle, my conduct in time past in the Jews religion, how that beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it. And I profited or I advanced in the Jews religion above many of my equals, many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father's. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I did not confer with flesh and blood. Neither did I go up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and I returned again unto Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I stayed with him for 15 days. So we see that Paul spent three years in Damascus and the Arabian province of Rome. We find that for three years, he spent time in that area, three years. And it was in those three years that he mentions that he received his 
gospel, his message, by revelation of Jesus Christ. The word there, revelation, is apocalypsis, and it means divine instruction. Jesus himself came and discipled Saul. In verse 16 here of Galatians 1, Paul, and I will switch back and forth because by the time he wrote Galatians, he's Paul, and the time we're in Acts, he's Saul, so please don't get confused or think I don't know who I'm talking about. But in verse 16 of Galatians 1, he says that after he received his marching orders in Damascus, he did not confer with human instruction. And then he mentions in verse 17, going into Arabia. So the idea is his instruction came in Arabia. Now, Arabia was simply the Roman province that was governed by the Nabataeans. At that time, King Aretas IV was the one in charge. And that province stretched from Damascus all the way down the eastern side of Jordan, modern-day Jordan, into the desert region that was south of Judea and ended at the Sinai Peninsula. So all the way down into modern-day, the northern parts of Saudi Arabia. Now, some have suggested that since the other apostles sat under Jesus's earthly ministry for three years, you see the correlation there, that this is what happened with Saul during his three years in Arabia and Damascus, that Jesus was walking him through the same lessons that he taught the other disciples. Some have even suggested he went all the way down to Mount Sinai, the place where God gave Moses the law to receive that divine instruction. I don't know if that's what happened. But since Damascus is in Arabia, I personally believe he stayed in the general area of Damascus. There's other evidence in Acts that backs that up. I will get to that in a moment. But what's interesting is that for three years, here's this guy with all these qualifications, all this influence in his culture, and for three years, he's in this obscure Gentile city. Doing what? (laughs) Well, learning. Sharing his faith. And if you have a call on your life, you feel like God's called you to do something specific or maybe called you to the ministry, then there's always going to be a time of preparation for you as well. G. Campbell Morgan said, it may not always be Arabia as a geographical location, but God never uses for the great work of interpreting his kingdom any man who has not been definitely called and spiritually trained. Moses spent 40 years out in the wilderness losing that mentality of, I don't have to look up, I can just look left or right and I'll be the savior for my people. Joseph had to spend 20 years in prison as a slave or between being a slave and being in prison as a slave to prepare him for the place when he'd be risen up. Joshua spent how many years as Moses's helper, it says, his minister, his attendant. There's always a period of preparation We oftentimes, we receive a call of God and we say, all right, it's supposed to happen now. And then we grow discouraged when it doesn't happen now, right? Don't become discouraged. You're part of a great history of preparation. Now, while this was a period of being instructed personally by Jesus, was that all Saul did in Arabia? I don't believe so. The Nabataeans were Gentiles and Jesus commanded him to preach to Gentiles. And I think he did. I think he did. Look at what happens when he returns to Damascus. We'll go back, keep your finger in Galatians, but we'll go back over to Acts here. He says here in Acts that after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. They took counsel to kill him. Now, why on earth would you plan to kill a guy that hasn't done much? If he's gone out into the desert and just hung out with Jesus for three years and that's all he did, and all of a sudden he comes back and he starts sharing about Jesus, well, what's the big deal? That's really quick to get under somebody's skin. Maybe he had upset not just the Jews, but the Gentile authorities as well with his preaching for the last three years. Have you ever wondered why Saul never had to be convinced like Peter to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles? 
I have. Saul's first church that he ministered at, if we don't count Damascus, is Antioch. Antioch was the Gentile church. And when Barnabas was sent up there to go minister to them and disciple them and to teach them God's word, he realized this thing's blowing up. I can't do this on my own. He went and found Saul, the Bible says, in Tarsus and brought him back. And yet we see no thing where, you know, Barnabas comes to him and says, Saul, I need your help at Antioch. Antioch, isn't that the Gentile church thing that's going on? It's all weird. Gentiles getting saved. We never see any discussions. He gets right in. He starts discipling, starts teaching. But perhaps maybe that issue was already dealt with. Maybe he had already been sharing with Gentiles. Acts 26, verses 19 and 20 make it very clear. You can read that on your own time later. Acts 26, 19 and 20 make it very clear that Saul obeyed God immediately and he preached to the Gentiles at Damascus. It says it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. Paul explains there, he says, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, it says he kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to apprehend me. So it wasn't just the Jews that wanted to kill him. It was the governor of the city. He wanted to kill him as well. He wanted to capture him. He sent his own soldiers there. So it's very likely that while Saul was sitting at the feet of Jesus and being discipled, just as Jesus sent his own disciples out to preach the gospel, that Saul preached the gospel there to the Gentiles. And again, you know, I'd always wondered why Saul went so easily with Barnabas to be a leader of the very Gentile church in Antioch was perhaps because he'd already seen a very Gentile church in Damascus. Verse 24, back here in Acts. But their laying await was known of Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and they let him down by the wall in a basket. Their plot was known to Saul. And it mentions that they watched the gates day and night. Again, the Jews were in cahoots with the governor, most likely using his soldiers to keep watch of those gates for Saul. And so it says that they let him down by the wall in a basket. Literally the word by means through. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33 says it was through a window in the wall. Now the wall of Damascus still has homes with windows in the wall today. If you go there today, you can actually see on the outer walls, you can see the homes are pressed right up against the wall and very often there'd be windows in the wall to those homes. And so that's how Paul was able to escape. But what a fascinating thing that it mentions that the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a basket. How touching that the very people he had come to arrest and murder were the ones who saved his life. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a brother or sister that you have ought against that you will not reach out to? That you've cut off from fellowship? You've cut off a relationship with them because they've sinned against you in some way or because they've hurt you? This guy came and I can only imagine that there were people present who were believers there in Damascus, who had fled Jerusalem, who had fled the persecution that was instigated by Saul, who had lost loved ones at his hand. And if he could forgive their murder, then who are we to hold back and to not release that person who has sinned against us? Guys, there's no place for unforgiveness. There's no place for bitterness. There's no place. If you want to stifle the spirit of God, you want to stifle the work of God, then don't forgive. Don't let go of something. Hold on tight to it. And we'll continue to just be right as we are. Remember what Jesus said to Ephesus? He said, you have all these wonderful things going on. You're solid on doctrine, he said. You got all sorts of ministries going on. 
but there's no love in this church. You have left your first love. There's no love in this church. And guess what? I won't be in a church where there's no love. So if you won't love, I'm leaving. That's heavy. That's heavy. We have no time to be petty. There are people going to hell right around us in the neighborhoods right here. They're going to hell. We have no time to be petty about what someone said that we didn't like or what someone did that broke our hearts. I'm so glad that when I've broken my Savior's heart that he has not held back in forgiving me. That he has not held on to that thing that I just can't seem to get over and can't seem to get right. But he's been gracious to me. The Bible says that is how all men will know that we belong to him, that we are true followers of Christ by the love that we have one for another. Not the love for the world, the love that we have one for another. I read an article once and it was talking about worship. It was talking about the infighting that we have in churches because many times you'll see a sign and it'll mention traditional service, contemporary service, right? I read an article that said, if we can't even worship together, what kind of message does that send to the world? Many years ago, I had a friend of mine, I led worship for many years, and and so I was always looking for new music and stuff. And a friend of mine, he sent me a CD. He said, listen to this. He said, it's great. And so I listened to it, and I went through it, and then the music just touched me. I mean, really touched me. I was like, man, this is some good music. And it happened that the CD that he gave me was actually a DVD. And so as the last song played, it kicked into the DVD part. And now all of a sudden this worship started to play and it was actually their church. Their church was playing there and their church was singing. And he saw all these kids just bouncing up and down and just all excited and, and rocking out. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. I'm going, man, I'm so glad we don't do that. But I brought my laptop over and slapped it down on the table. And I said, look at this craziness, Bev, all these people putting on a show and acting all crazy and whatever. And look at this. And tears started running down her face. And I was confused. <laughs> Because here I am, I'm indignant. Look at all these crazy people and those people like crazy theology and you know all this stuff. And, and here she's got tears streaming down her face. And she said, look at all those kids worshiping Jesus with all their heart. I remember I walked away with that laptop. I went in my bedroom and I got along with the Lord and I said, Lord, I didn't see any of that. I said, you gotta do something in my heart. And as I went through the scriptures, I was recalling the time when David was dancing before the Lord and Michael, his wife, was up from the window, not participating in the worship, but from a distance with folded arms, looking, saying, oh, how great the king of Israel looked today, playing out there with all the ladies. And David said to her, he said, I I did it before the Lord. I wasn't doing it for a show. I wasn't doing it for anybody else. It was just, I did it for the Lord. And the Lord just told me, he said, well, he said, you need to be careful that you do not become Michael. I don't want to despise someone because they do things a little bit different than I do. Well, what are you saying? Well, are you going to try to turn us into, I'm not trying to turn us into anybody. All right. I just want to ask you an honest question. Can we worship together? Can we come to a place where our young people and our older people can come together and we can say, you know what? I want to be excited for the opportunity that we have younger people coming in and they want to worship the Lord and maybe do it a little bit differently than I do it. Or maybe I'm comfortable with or sing songs maybe that I don't know. Can I be comfortable with that from a mature perspective as someone who's walked with the Lord for many, many years and use that as an opportunity to say, look at all these young people I can pour into and disciple. As Christians, we have the unique responsibility to pass on what we have learned to the next generation. And our movement was birthed by a man and a woman who were just open to say, God, 
This is a little bit out of the ordinary. It's a little bit different than what we're comfortable with and what we're used to. But we believe you died for these kids and you love them. And guess what? They're really lost and no one else is reaching them. And if we're not gonna go reach them, then who will? Because we can sit on the side and say, we like how we are. We like how things are the way they should be. And then they'll just go to hell around us. I remember the Lord at that moment, he told me, Will, he said, this isn't about you. This is about asking the question of how are we going to reach the people who aren't here? How are we going to take those who are in darkness and bring them into light? The sons of Asaph were one of the worship groups that David anointed to lead the people into the presence of God. And what you find is every generation, they're there. Every generation, they're there to pass on the great name of the Lord and his power and his might. Look at it all throughout the scriptures. Do a little study of the sons of Asaph. God used them instrumentally to reach every generation that they were in. They were there during the time of David. They were there during Solomon. They were there when King Hezekiah brought the restoration of the Passover and other events. They were there with Josiah when he restored the Feast of Tabernacles many years later. They were there in the exile. They were there when they came back. They were one group that stayed faithful that said, it's our job to reach the generation that we're ministering to. Read one of their Psalms where it talks about, they says it's our duty to pass this on to the next generation. This is the love that we have one for another. If we can't even worship together, if we can't even come to a place where we can just love one another and unite together in the fact that we know the risen Lord, then how in the world are we gonna reach anybody else? Verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed or he attempted to join himself the word there, say it is in the imperfect, which means he tried multiple times without success to join himself to the apostles, to become a part of them. He wanted to be a part of what they were doing. But it says that they were all afraid of him and they believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. Isn't that awesome? Barnabas went and found him and he took him and he brought him to the apostles and he declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. It could have cost him his life. He didn't know if he was legit. Can you imagine what it was like when Ananias brought Paul to church for the first time? Hey, look, it's a new believer, Saul, Tarsus. You idiot. <laughs> I knew you'd get us in trouble one day. Always believing in people. Always, and always giving people the benefit of the doubt, Ananias. And here's Barnabas, same type of spirit, same type of heart. He goes and he takes Paul, Saul, and he brings him to the apostles and he declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so it says, verse 28, he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Who's the last person you took a chance on? Who's the last person you took a chance on? You'll get burned sometimes. You will, but it's okay. It's okay because Saul never becomes Paul without Barnabas. Isn't it worth the risk? Isn't it worth the risk to take a chance? I mentioned that he was brought to the apostles, but actually it was just Peter and James. The other apostles were either not present or didn't meet with him. You can find that in Galatians 1. Saul stays with Peter for 15 days. Could you imagine those conversations? That's one I want to find out about in heaven. I want to be like, you two, tell me all about those 15 days. Yeah, well, Saul, he, yeah, once he found out I fell asleep in the garden, that's all I ever heard of for 14 days. <laughs> you What? <laughs> You fell asleep? 
Yeah, I I denied him three times, but he forgave me. He restored me. I wonder if there was a moment when they both saw eye to eye the betrayal that they shared and knew that they'd been forgiven. Well, Saul says at verse 29, as he was going, now he's a part of the church there, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Paul spoke boldly with complete confidence, and yet look at who he speaks it to. These were the very same Jews that Stephen was disputing with. Isn't that incredible? What a turn of events to see Stephen's chief prosecutor taking his place of ministry. He goes right to those same Jews that Stephen had been ministering to and preaching the gospel to, and he preaches boldly, and they say, we've had it. (laughs) You? You? You of all people, you're the one who was holding the garments. You were the one who was voting for his death, and now you're going to tell us that Jesus is the only way? Traitor. Traitor. And so they sought to kill him. In Acts 22, verses 17 through 21, look it up on your own time. It says, Paul reveals that the Lord supernaturally showed him their plot to kill him. And he was told to leave Jerusalem because God was sending him to the Gentiles. And so when he tells the church, verse 30, they escort him safely away, which when the brothers knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. And so Saul is put on the back burner for a while. He is sent home to Tarsus. Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia and Saul's hometown. It's also the scene of the first meeting between Mark Antony and Cleopatra, for those of you who are history buffs. It's renowned as a place of education under the early Roman empires, had the second largest library in the world, thus attracting many of the great philosophers of the day. Saul grew up there. He would have received a Hellenistic education there before being sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Now he returns. And Saul will spend the next 10 to 12 years in Tarsus. There's very little we know about that time. We don't have much details, but Galatians chapter one, verses 22 through 24 reveal that he preached the gospel enough that word reached Judea of his work there. He just continued to preach the gospel. He says for a total of 14 years until he began to see the fulfillment of his ministry. Verse 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galatia and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. Isn't that cool? Before it was the church at Jerusalem, right? Well, now it's the church. And the word their churches is actually singular in the Greek. It just is one church. But there's a church that was throughout Judea, Galilee, and with those dirty Samaritans. Rescued. Saved by grace. Listen. Let's go. Let's tell. We have the greatest message in the world and let's not hinder it by not loving one another. Let's live in such a way that we forgive one another. We are ready and able and willing to forgive one another when we hurt each other, when we wound each other, willing to take chances on folks, willing to be open to what God might want to do. That as those in the world see our love for one another, they'll know we've been with Jesus. So who should we be? Who are we supposed to be? My heart, my desire is for us to be what God wants us to be. And however he wants us to reach our city, to do that. And that means we need to be on our face seeking God. We need to be filled with the Spirit so we can love one another. That we might be able to do whatever it is that he wants us to do. 
We have a great message. We have a great heritage. And I don't want to see it die just because we're unwilling (laughs) to do things that might be out of our comfort zone. Let's be open to whatever God wants to do. That as we teach his word faithfully, we never ever depart from it. And we teach it with all of our heart and we preach it with all of our heart that Jesus is the only way and there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. That that love that they see and that truth that they hear would penetrate their heart and that God might in his mercy and grace send one last revival. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. Lord, here we are. We just want to be filled with you. We want to be used by you. Lord, we believe that the best days are ahead of us. As you're going to lead us and guide us, Lord, once again, as you've continued throughout all these years in that faithful ministry to go and tell the world about you. Lord, we yield ourselves to you now. Mold us and shape us. Lord, convict us where we have been unloving and unkind to one another. And Lord, lead us in that way everlasting. Lord, it might be said of us that we walked in your fear and in the comfort of your spirit and that you multiplied your work. Lord, we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is the God of second chances. He has brought us from all walks of life and knit us together in this thing called the church. The only thing holding it together is his love for us, working in us, changing our lives daily, molding us to be more like him through the power of his Holy Spirit. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Light is strong on me,